Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good to be with you. Starting a new series today, new kind of a summer mini-series and, you know, I was thinking about, there was a, a time some years ago when some former American prisoners of war were interviewed to determine what methods of breaking them down that were used by the enemy would be most effective. You would think it would be like deprivation, hunger, or torture, or something like that. And they said that wasn't really it. What was the most difficult thing for the soldiers to deal with was solitary confinement, being alone. They would be frequently moved around and separated from their friends and fellow soldiers because they drew their greatest strength from the close relationships, the bonds they had formed with other soldiers in small groups, small units. And that's what relationship is about. And I have to say, our own personal relationship to God, as vital, as important as that is, we talk about it a lot, your Bible reading plan, eating Bible, and all of that, very important, but it's not enough in and of itself to produce spiritual maturity, obedience even to the Word, and endurance in the faith. We need more. Someone said, in fact, that a committed Christian undergoes three conversions. First to Christ, then to the church, and then they go out to the world. So we're going to be talking about conversion to the church, actually, so to speak, the commitment we make to it, because Christians are given responsibilities. When you were saved, it wasn't just a a life insurance premium from hell that got paid, and then you do whatever. No. God has called us, commanded us, one of the Christian's commands, as this series is called, is for us to be in a local body. God is not big on lone rangers. doesn't work. didn't work for those soldiers that I mentioned. It's not going to work for you either. Join with me again for a word of prayer as we get into the text. Lord God, I pray that I would be faithful to the Scripture and filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord. And pray you'll open the eyes and the ears again of our hearts. Lord God, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Give us understanding. By the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the responsibility is what I'm talking about is the Christian's commands. And they might vary depending on who you talk to, how many commands there are. But in Acts 2, you get a real idea from the early church as to where we start in relating to one another, serving the Lord. In this text, you should know this is one of the watershed moments of world and church history. This is where the church is born, Pentecost, okay? Let me set the scene in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit has come upon a number of disciples in Jerusalem with tongues of fire. They began speaking about Christ to everyone assembled there in one language, probably Hebrew, could have been Aramaic, and the people assembled were hearing it in their own language in their own dialect. And that was a sign, a wonder, a miracle from the Spirit. But the Jewish skeptics hearing this, they're they're nearby, and they thought the people 
we're drunk with what's going on. In fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 13, they say, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. What's going on here? And so Peter gets up with the other apostles and he starts to preach the first recorded sermon in church history. There's a big apologetic, a big defense of the gospel right in the middle of it because he argues for the Messiahship and the deity of Christ right from the history, the covenants of Israel. He gives prophecies. He makes predictions about what the first and the second advents or comings and rivals of Jesus are going to look like. And then in the close, in the home stretch, he rebukes his listeners. He was a, he was a great preacher. It would have been wonderful to hear him. And he tells them that even though God sovereignly preordained the cross, they, their leaders, the Jewish religious leaders along with Pilate in Rome, were responsible for crucifying, for killing Jesus. But then he gives them the hope, right? Bad news, then good news. He gives them the hope of the gospel and resurrection to come using the words of King David who had the hope of resurrection. And then what happens? It says, as you heard in the reading, They were cut, pierced to the heart. Just like that put in mind for me, Hebrews 4.12, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, cutting to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. So that's what Peter's sermon did to this crowd. Guilt, shame, just watched over them in their part of killing their Messiah. So they're crying out here for help. What do we do? Peter gives them two commands to get two blessings. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? Let's look at the gospel commands here first. We're going to start in verse 37 into 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And just stop there for a second. Again, we talk about this a lot. A guilty conscience can be a good thing. That's what's happening here. Why? Because it can lead to repentance, right? They were cut, pierced to the heart. And that's a picture of sorrow. The truth of their sin had broken their heart. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, godly grief, a godly grief produces a salvation that leads to a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death, which is worldly grief is just, oh, I'm sorry, I got caught. Godly grief is, I know I've sinned against God, I'm confessing that, and I want to make a turn. Now, being a Jew at the time here, They were familiar with turning and repenting to to a certain extent. But what they would do is they would lead to a teaching of someone to make some kind of offering or a sacrifice or a prayer, right? And they had this symbolic, superficial, sacrificial system. Uh, Maybe we got to do something like that, some religious thing we got to do. That's kind of like worldly grief right there because they've been caught by God basically with their hands on the nails, the crucified Christ. Like, they might have said, okay, what animal do I kill for this one? Or maybe restitution. i got to make up for this some, sometime. Maybe, maybe we go to Mary and apologize. Hey, we played a part in killing your son. Uh, no, that's not it. They're just wrestling with godly grief. Those who Peter's addressing 
are really godly grief. They're spiritually bankrupt. They're guilty before God. They understand they deserve His wrath, His judgment, and what the consequence is coming. And then others, as we talked about, with the unforgivable sin a few weeks ago, right? They just stay stiff-necked. They ignore the message. They're rebels. They reject it. They experience Christ in the Spirit. They don't really care. But many of these people that are listening to Peter, they know they need mercy. So he gives them these two gospel commands. We're going to look at them a little more in depth again. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, which is our memory verse this month, by the way, as you know, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First thing that sticks out, repentance and faith always come first. They are the two sides of the salvation coin. That's where new life began for you if you're a Christian. That's what baptism signifies, okay? God sovereignly saves, but you have a part, as you know by now in this, which is to turn from your sin to the Savior, to God, and trusting in Christ. That's repentance. Whereas, again, the old covenant means of repentance was a recommitment to law, just keeping law. Superficial stuff. Whereas in the New Covenant, repentance is defined as a change of heart. It is to reverse the direction of your life. You were going this way, now you're going to go this way in following Christ. And to do that, you have to turn from something to something else. You have to turn from someone to someone else. That's Jesus. And we see this repeated throughout the book of Acts at least ten times. In fact, chapter 3, verse 19 says... Again, Peter's preaching says, repent, therefore, and turn back. So he's basically saying that, in other words, same thing, that your sins may be blotted out, may be removed, cleared off your record. That's what the Lord does. But here it is. There's a textual problem for some people in this command that you just heard. Be baptized. Because there's a connection grammatically in English that people struggle with. Some read this verse real quick, Acts 2.38, And they think both repentance and baptism go together as the means of what produces the forgiveness of sins because the phrase says, baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. They assume the word translated for there means in order to get. If you're baptized, you get the forgiveness of sins. So in that view, we know people like that, we all do, they would think baptism is essential for salvation. That's why our Catholic friends believe in infant baptism. They think the infusion of saving grace begins with a baby's baptism. They would point to Acts 2.38, actually, as a proof text of that. But that word, that preposition there, for, that can be translated in more than one way and can mean something else. Like when somebody says, take two Advil for your headache. Well, it's obvious that you don't take Advil in order to get a headache, right? Instead, it's really take two Advil because you already have a headache. The headache came first. So you see how that word for can take on a slightly different meaning. So there's that. And then there's a bigger problem for paedo-baptists, those that believe in infant baptism, for a number of reasons. Number one... In Scripture, forgiveness of sins is based all over the New Covenant on faith alone. John 3, Romans 4, 
Galatians 3, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, right? The second problem for them is experience. How many of you are like me? If you're Hispanic, this had to be the case. I'm one of millions of people over church history that were baptized as infants, and the baptism had no effect whatsoever on my life. I didn't know anything, and I went on to live like a pagan for the first three decades of my life. So obviously, the baptism didn't take. Something didn't happen. Something went wrong. What went wrong is I got baptized as an infant. It can't mean anything. Furthermore, Peter, the same preacher of this text, he promises, again, forgiveness of sins always tied into faith. Acts 5, Acts 13. When he's preaching to Cornelius, who was a pagan, and in Acts 10, 43, he's talking to his household, and he says this, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So just belief there, that was it. There was nothing else attached to it. There's no, there's no baptism. Baptism is not a condition or a vehicle of salvation. You know the story of the uh, thief on the cross once, right? Thief on the cross, he dies. He trusts in Christ as they're about to die. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? Was there any water there? You know, hey, we got to get him off the cross and get him baptized so he gets into heaven. That didn't happen. Why? Because it doesn't need to happen, as we're going to learn today about baptism. Here's a picture of the Philippian jailer. I want you to go a few pages over in your Bible or flipping of the screen there. That's still weird for me to say that. Acts chapter 16. This is a familiar story to some of you. Paul and Silas are beaten. They're jailed because they rebuked a woman. She's a demonically possessed fortune teller. Paul did the exorcism. The owners of the business, a little uptight because of the fear that they're going to lose money if people aren't calling for divination and they're coming to Christ. So they tell these, you know, these Roman officials that Paul and Silas are trouble. Trouble. They need to be dealt with. So they were beaten, and they're taken to jail, Paul and Silas are. And then in the story, verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas, Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, which is remarkable right there, by the way. How many Christians are going to start singing hymns and psalms when they're in jail? And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately the doors opened, everyone's bonds are unfastened. All right? So now the jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks he's going to be blamed for what happened, that he's lost the prisoners. If you're there, look at verse 30 and 31. Then he brought them out, the jailer, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So this would be a good opportunity for Paul to say, uh, well, just get baptized, right? No. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Wait a minute. You and your household? Maybe the Catholics are right. The whole household gets saved because one guy gets saved and baptized? Is that it? No. Look at verse 33, a little further. Verse 32, he says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So there's preaching going on to everyone in the house. That assumes they can listen. And then, verse 33, 
Now, it says they were baptized at once, he and all his family. That sounds bad. That sounds bad until you get to verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had what? Believed in God. So the entire household heard, believed, and was baptism. Because requiring anything else in salvation is works-based salvation. The new covenant makes it clear that is not so. In fact, if you were to go to Ezekiel chapter 36, that's a passage we'll cite here and there, there's the Old Testament prophecy about these two blessings going in hand, which is repentance, faith, and listen to the baptistic language representing the Holy Spirit here. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God speaking through Ezekiel says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So there's an analogy, a picture. Stone, heart, death, life. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that's where repentance comes in. So you see it pictured there. So listen, baptism. Baptism is not essential to the act of salvation and the blessing of being forgiven. It's not. So if that's true, you might be thinking, why do these credo-baptists, that's what we are. That's a big technical theological term. A credo-baptist, credo means creed, something you profess. So we're professing believers, getting baptized. Why do we do that? It's not necessary for salvation. It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Before I answer that, let me say that there is no good proof for baptism being essential for sanctification either. Not just salvation, like the receiving of spiritual gifts, signs and wonders, any other kind. Some of our our charismatic friends that we love, they will lead you to believe that. If you haven't spoken in tongues or healed someone or prophesied right after you were saved, they say, well, maybe you didn't receive a second blessing or a second baptism. I know some of you have had that experience. But here's what there are. There are anointings of the Spirit. There are special blessings and unction where the Spirit comes on us to do things God has signed us, called us to do. That's different. I I pray for that every week when I come up to preach, that I would receive an anointing and an unction from the Holy Spirit. But I don't get a baptism for that. I don't get sprinkled, and I don't try to find some water back here for that to happen. I don't need that. Why? Because our verse tells me that when I repented and believed and was forgiven, which is my first blessing, I received my second blessing, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that means the Holy Spirit indwells me as He indwells you. He's a person that comes to live in you. In fact, the Trinity of God, for that matter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in spirit, come to live in you. Every believer who has ever been saved over history receives this gift, which is the power and the presence of the person of Christ. And so we pray for the Spirit to fill us, as we often do, that we would walk with the Spirit, be led with the Spirit, because He's there. But if we don't relinquish power and control of our lives to Him, we're not going to sense His presence and His moving in us. Amen? And have you noticed that when you do let the Spirit do what only He can do, God can use you to do marvelous things. 
So that's our relationship. You see, every believer who's ever been saved over history has received this gift. And not everybody gets the same gift. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives out the gifts. In fact, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. And we had a series where we dug into this, the power and the gifts of the Spirit, verse by verse. But you're going to see in 1 Corinthians 12, I just want to show you a couple of verses. Verse 4 says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, okay? And then Paul gives a list of the different gifts there. There's about three or four different lists in the New Testament, and they overlap. And then verse 11, he says, all these, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit. And listen, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You don't determine what your spiritual gifts are. He does. Spirit says what you're going to get. It's clear that's what that said. He apportions them individually as he wills. So not everybody can get the same gift. So if you don't have this gift, that's okay. God didn't mean for you to have that one. He meant for you to have this one. And that's how the body works. There's diversity and unity in the church. So biblically, there is no second baptism of the Spirit today. There's just been confusion of a couple of texts from the book of Acts that were exceptional post-salvation baptisms of the Spirit, like in Samaria, because the church hadn't received the moving of the Spirit with the gospel yet. But then some people have tried to make that normative for today. That's not the case, okay? So, we go back to the question. Why should you get baptized? What's the point? Why does God command it? Because this is a command. This is an imperative from Peter. God's Word commands it. And you're going to see also, by the way, when the Lord gave us the Great Commission mission to make disciples, what did He say? Go and make disciples. What's the next line? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that must be pretty important. You get making baptism, making disciples, that's evangelism, and then it goes right to baptism. So it's got to be important. And then second, it's a blessing that pictures the blessed reality of salvation for you that's already occurred in the life of a believer, believer who's repented in towards Christ. And again, you should know, this is one of only two ordinances in the church. You've got baptism, you've got the Lord's Supper being the other, which we'll talk about in this series as well. We do that every month in this church, and it's symbolized by bread and the juice, or the wine. The Lord did that at the Lord's table the first time, okay, and they were signs, again, signs, of body and blood. So believers' baptism, we identify publicly with our Lord and Savior when we get baptized. Okay? It's a picture symbolizing your death and resurrection by faith, paralleling the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make sense? I'm going to give you a parallel. I have a wedding ring on my finger. Those of you that are married have a wedding ring. A wedding ring does not make you married. And that's good for me because I almost misplaced and lost our rings before I got married to Madi at the last second. I couldn't find the ring. So if I believed that the ring made the wedding, I'd be a single guy today, right here. But a ring says that you are married. It's a picture that you're married to both your spouse and everyone else that can see it, right? People say they look at a ring on your finger and well, you must be married. This is the same kind of idea. This is a picture of a covenant relationship that I have entered into with my wife. 
So it's kind of like a visual shorthand, you could say, for the whole marriage package. It's a symbol. And I could use another covenant example too, circumcision. The Hebrews would circumcise the male children eight days old, and that would be a symbol of that covenant nation. In fact, many Christ-loving Presbyterians look to the circumcision of Israeli children as a justification of baptizing infants. Again, pedo baptism However, big however, I'm going to tell you what the problem is with that. Again, you have to know where to draw lines and distinctions. The covenant of Israel, that symbol was of a physical covenant, an ethnic people, a nation, where believers' baptism, as you see throughout the New Testament, is a sign and a symbol of a spiritual not a physical reality, a spiritual reality. The new birth, okay? People from Cuba and Korea and China get baptized and they're saved and we share in that sign where the Jewish covenant of circumcision was only for the Jew, basically. You understand? So there's a difference there. And I shouldn't have to tell you, again, as I alluded to this earlier, An infant does not understand sin and the gospel, much less being able to repent of it. So why would we baptize them? As we remember from our series in Mark's gospel, the Lord's been telling us all over the kingdom is a new and better way for God's people to be reconciled to himself. Baptism just pictures that. It's a picture. Baptizo from the Greek. You should know that word only to say this. It was a metaphor for a ship that would be sinking underwater. So it's something that goes under. It has a literal sense to it, a figurative sense to it. A literal meaning is to submerge, to go under, or to dip, to immerse something in water. Why water? Lord could have used other symbols. Well, even a Jew understood the metaphor of water. What does water do when you shower? Cleanses. It's a cleansing agent. That meant something to a Jew. The Levitical priests would be cleansed, right? They would do that with Gentile converts to Judaism. They're like, you need a bath. Not that kind of bath, but you need a bath because you're a formerly pagan person. And that should symbolically be washed and dealt with. So water always played a part in this. John the Baptist previewed this. We've seen that. He talked about repentance and faith is pictured by it. And then I want you to go to Romans chapter 6, and I want you to see really maybe what is the clearest text of this picture. Romans 6, verses 3 to 5, when we baptize someone in this church, we recite these verses, or we really paraphrase them. And people that have been baptized here know this. Romans 6, 3, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? So the picture is you've been immersed, you're into Christ, We were baptized into his death. Huh. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the picture again, baptism, is paralleling the gospel events of death, burial, resurrection. Verse 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. Are you getting that imagery? Okay, because I know at first listening, I, I'm not sure I get that. Okay, Christ died and he was resurrected to bring us new life. Our baptism shows that we in Christ died to our old sin and were made alive as new creations by faith in Christ. Remember the Lord told the disciples at the Last Supper, he's previewing the cross and he said, because I live, you will also live. Okay, so it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Because didn't Jesus say when you repented and you come to Christ, he says, oh, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross and follow me. Well, a cross is an instrument of death. What it is, it's you're dying to your old self. When you died, when you repented, you actually had a death. Your death, your old way of thinking and doing things died. You basically told the Lord, my old way, my old life, it's done. It's over with. What you want, I want. What you love, I love. What you hate, I hate. I want to follow and obey you. That's repentance. That's a picture of immersion, of death, and the new life. That heart of stone, Ezekiel, stone to flesh. When you were born again, that's you. That's why we lead you out of the water. When we baptize you and we say, okay, now you've been resurrected, so to speak. Now walk in the newness of life. Just walk, be who you now are. Does that make better sense? Now you might say, okay, I get it. I get believer's baptism, what it is, what it is, why we do it. There are gospel commands, there's blessings in it. But when, when do we do this? Well, that's a tough one. Because there is no age of accountability, specifically in the Bible. Okay, 12 years old, there are some churches that won't baptize someone until they're 12 or 13 years old. I understand the thinking behind it, I respect it, but that's just something they've come up with. It's not in Scripture. We tend to look at a person that can make a credible profession of faith, understand the gospel, understand what sin, repentance, and trust is. And if they make a credible profession of faith, we baptize people younger than 10. It mostly seems to be that 7, 8 years old and above. There can be exceptions to that rule. But I'll tell you when it should happen. Right very close immediately attached to your salvation. You want a picture? Go back in the book of Acts chapter 8. You know the story. Some of you do about Philip, be one of the deacons in the church, and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Ethiopian eunuch's in a chariot. He's reading Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah. Philip happens by, and, and of course the Ethiopian eunuch is like, I'm not sure what this means. Help me out. Can you help me out with this? And he does. He explains it, leads him to trust in Christ, right? That starts off in chapter 8 and then verse 36. It says, as they're going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Wow. He just got saved and he's like, I'm looking for a lake. I'm looking for a pond, something, because I got to get baptized. He knew that much. He heard that much. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Okay? So there was immediate obedience to the word. Now, you might say, okay, I get believer's baptism. Okay. I, and, but I'm still on the timing. Hey, I got baptized as a baby. Didn't that take? No, we're not talking about that. 
That doesn't count. Or you might say, you know, I made a profession of faith years ago. I got baptized in a church. But here's what happened. Later you came to realize you weren't even a believer when that happened. So maybe, just maybe, it's time to be baptized as a believer. So you're really understanding, and those around you in your church community and friends and family understand what you're about and what you've done. We had, until they moved away, we had a large family in our church, and he had been baptized as a believer at a church north of here. And um, he came to find out later he really wasn't a Christian when he got baptized. And so we're trying to work out the date. He wound up, I wound up rebaptizing him at my house. And so that can happen. That can happen for some of you. And it should. You should prayerfully ponder whether you should be baptized or not as a believer if, if you were and had any doubts about it. I should also add, baptism should lead to an immediate commitment and to an identification with a local church, with a body of believers. Always has been. In fact, baptism is a precondition of committing to the fellowship of our church. That's one of your acrostics you'll be quizzed on, CTF, okay? And to CTF here, you need to have shown proof that you will be baptized by us as a believer or that you have been as a believer. That's something that our elders ask each and every one of you that wants to become a member here. You should never divorce baptism from membership a local fellowship of believers. The apostles didn't. In fact, back in our text, Peter didn't either. If you go to the end of the chapter, verses 40 and 41, Paul, uh, so Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So three things happened that day. People were saved, people were baptized, and people were counted that day. So many people got saved. So many people belong to this body of believers. That's how it ties together. So we've seen from our text, you got gospel commands, you got gospel blessings. One more from this picture of baptism. It finally leads to gospel hope. Look at Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What promise? What, what promise are you talking about here? A, a promise is a pronounced good or a blessing of something. The promise comes from verse 38. The promise is two blessings that come from repentance and faith. That's pictured in baptism, which is forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about forgiveness for a second. We can never take that for granted, folks. The Old Testament pictures it without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness for sin. And that's an Old Testament concept that is true in the New Covenant. And so what it is, is forgiveness here is wrapped up in the hope of the gospel. I'm going to tie the two together. Hope is the expectation that we know something is true and hasn't quite arrived yet. We're waiting for it expectantly. For Christians, we talk about the hope of heaven, the hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection, Right? For instance, that's what I'm trying to communicate to my father-in-law right now who is toward a stage at the end of life and who is suffering greatly. But we are tr I'm trying to drive him to see the hope of glory, to carry the hope of heaven. And that's a wonderful thing because that means for us there is a bodily resurrection unto eternal life, not death, no hell, no judgment. 
were rescued from all of that. That's why we call this salvation. That means rescue. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of hope for believers because we've repented, we've believed in Jesus, and we get this blessing that, wow, we're clean. Our sins have been forgiven. That's wonderful. And we know the Lord has done that for us. He took our place on the cross. And so we get the gift also of the Spirit of God that lives within us. We see Him moving in our lives, and other people should see that, by the way, and then your baptism just pictures all of that, okay? The Spirit is our teacher. He's our counselor. He's our helper, according to the Bible. And He confirms even our salvation. Romans 8 language. The Spirit Himself bears with witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So you get that sense, if you have the Holy Spirit, that you're a believer. So we have a bright future, folks. And we know it. We have the end of the story in the book. We know the ending. We win, enemy loses, right? That would probably deserve an amen from somebody. Okay. Getting back to baptism, which is the theme here, okay? Who is it for? Who should be baptized? Again, anybody, everyone, or as many that are near or far that God has called, elected to salvation, to himself, who are going to receive these blessings. Listen. If you've been elected or chosen, called by God to be saved, you will repent, you will believe in Christ. And incredibly, that's because the Lord did spiritual heart surgery on you. You get a new nature. The elect get that. And according to the New Testament, they even get repentance and faith as gifts as well. That God leads you to receiving the gift of the Spirit on top of that. I mean, that's Romans 8. That's an incredible package. That's gospel. So my close here is simple. Look. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, obey this first of the Christian's commands. Get baptized as a believer as soon as possible. But make sure you are a believer first before you get baptized. Ask yourself, have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ? Have you obeyed these two gospel commands to receive these two blessings and the hope that comes with it. Is the Spirit's work present in your life? Big question, folks. I'm going to repeat this for you in other words so you get it. If you've been baptized and you don't see faith and you don't see the fruit of that faith or the fortitude of the fruit of that faith, you may not be a believer no many how many times you get baptized because baptism is just a picture. Do you have the reality... Don't put the symbol before the substance of it. Look at the picture just to get the process. But remember, it's the process that comes first. That's what's pictured. The process is turn away from your sin and self to God, trust in Christ by faith alone. Or, in the words that are symbolized by baptism, die to yourself and life Live life in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit among us, who is our teacher, who bears witness of salvation in our hearts if we are truly regenerate, born again in Christ. I pray, Lord, that if for someone visiting with us today, someone who's been here for some time, someone who's been baptized perhaps in another church, 
Someone's been baptized here. They did not really understand repentance until this moment. May this be the moment. This be the moment for them that they are repenting. They are turning to you and trusting in Jesus alone. By your grace alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Spirit. Lord, I pray we will take this gospel with us, those that are in Christ, and we will share it as comprehensively and as concisely as we can. And as we've tried to communicate here today, that is about repentance and faith in Christ. And Lord God, I pray that for those that have not yet been baptized as believers, they take that step of obedience in obeying that first of the commands that you have given those in your church, that you have baptized by faith already, spiritually, into your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people here said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.ChristComChurch.org. That's ChristComChurchCom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.